If you brought a Bible with you this morning, you might want to turn to the last book in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. If you didn't bring one with you, you find them in the racks around you, and you can watch on the screen as well. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, but then put your finger there, and then also go to the second book in the Bible. The, in the very beginning, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's the book of Genesis, and the very next book is the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 34, we've got these, these two passages that are kind of bookends of my understanding of God. So Exodus 34 and Revelation chapter 6. And so here's what we're going to be doing this morning. Um, not happy Sunday, right? We're going to be talking about hell, all right? Nervous laughter across the auditorium. It, it, it's just incredibly uncomfortable. And, and if you're new to church, um, understand even church people don't like having that conversation. It, it's just like, man, it's a reality, and what do I do with it, and I, I don't want to know about it. And immediately our mind goes to individuals that we think, I'm wondering what's going on with them. Um, this is information, though, that God included in the Bible, right? And so God wouldn't put it in his word if he didn't want us to know it. So we have a responsibility to look at it. And I started thinking back, when's the last time I taught on hell? And I think it's been like four or five years when I taught the book of Revelation, so we're coming fast forward back around to this, and, and here's the deal. Some people would say, um, wait, you know, like Easter was happy Sunday. Why would we be talking about hell right after that? But here's why. We're dealing with eternal things here, right? And it, it, it's, it's not a game. This is just serious stuff. So when Michael shared with you that 22 people prayed to identify themselves as uh, following Jesus Christ last weekend, know this, the weekend before that, 18 people prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. So you've got 40 people that have said, hey, I understand what it is to be forgiven of my sin now, but what's at stake for those who have not yet forgiven? We really need to understand what God says about hell. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd love just to pray with you for a minute before we step into this really uncomfortable stuff, okay? So let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing that you can speak, and you do, and you speak through things like this, and you, and you, you check us, you, you push on us, and you cause us to have to do something with it because you said your word is alive, and it's active, and it's sharp, and sometimes it hurts. So Father, I ask on behalf of the men and the women, the students, all of us who have gathered here together today, that you would reveal things to us about who we are in relation to you and what you want us to do with this information. And that we wouldn't just ignore it, but that it would be something that we meditate on and we understand your calling upon us and how you want us to respond. So we, we ask for that, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to teach and guide us. And we ask for that in the power of Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I told you there's these uh, two passages that kind of bookend my understanding. And they're both passages that are rarely discussed. Here's the first one. It's Exodus 34. And what's going on in the setting is Moses is on Mount Sinai. And Moses has done lots of things for God. He's led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he's on the mountain and he literally has said to God, I've done so much for you. Would you now show me what you look like? I want to see you. God's response to Moses is, no, no one can see me and live. What I'll do for you is I'll pass by and I'll turn on my afterburners. Literally, the, the way the Scriptures describe it is like the glow of the back end of a jet. God is just blazing. And that's all Moses could see because that's all he could handle. But then what God did is He began to call out His name. And that's what you find in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 6 says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we're really big on that stuff. We talked about it at Easter services last week. That's God. Yeah, right. He forgives sin. But many people leave out this next component. God says, that's not only true of me, but this component is true of me, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So verse 8, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And you would do the same thing if you were there, right? Man, if I'm on the mountainside and God has just declared all of that and I've seen all that, I'm doing a face plant. That's Moses' response. 
So we, we read that about the nature and character of God, and then we come to the unpunished part, and we say, whoa, what does punishment look like? Hold that thought. Uh, let's translate over to Revelation. Because Revelation has got the other bookend of this thought. Now what we have in this setting in Revelation chapter 6 is man is in the presence of God again. But this time God's not on planet earth. Man is in heaven. And John's writing the book of Revelation and he says, I looked and I saw before God's throne those individuals who had been beheaded for the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, they went through persecution. And, and then they cry this out in verse 10, Revelation 6.10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The blood that they're talking about is there's been an act of slaughter. There are people who've come out of the tribulation period and, and they're crying out, God, when are you going to bring the heat? When are you going to bring the vengeance? We've died for the name of Jesus. And yet... By the time you come to verse 11, you find vengeance doesn't come yet. So let's understand what's going on in this setting. There's one Greek word in your notes this morning, if you pull them out of the bulletin, and you'll see it on the screen, and it's this word kradzo. And the word kradzo is where we get the English word crazy from. And by this thought, the word kradzo means they're screaming for all they're worth, yelling out loud, a loud acclamation, God, when are you going to bring vengeance? And do you notice what they base the appeal on? When you look at the verse very closely, uh, Ryan, would you put that verse back up on the screen? Thanks for doing that, 610. It says they base the appeal on the attributes of God. Because you are holy, God, because God is holy, they're saying you've got to judge. You've got to judge the sin. And because you are true, you've got to be faithful to Bring vengeance, another word for justice. So catch this. What they're implying by this statement of those who are in heaven in the presence of God and they understand God's attributes and His character, they're saying, God, Your justice requires You to punish sin. If He does not punish sin, He's considered unjust. So process this sentence you're going to see on the screen. Because God is holy... He must judge. And because He is true, He must be faithful to His Word. Now just hold those thoughts for a minute. I'm going I'm to rabbit trail with you, and it's an intentional rabbit trail. It's a dangerous thing when speakers rabbit trail, but I'm telling you in advance I'm doing it, right? Okay, so three, just three minutes. I want you to hear this because many people wonder, what's going on in heaven? What, what, what is this describing here? The reason I bring it up now is because next week I'm teaching on heaven. This week, I'm teaching on hell. Next week, heaven. And many of us know individuals, family members, friends who have gone on before us, and we think, what's going on? Are, are they aware of me? Are, are they even thinking about the things on planet Earth? Do you notice very interestingly when you see in verse 10 that they're interested in earthly struggles? They're incredibly aware of what's going on, and they have strong emotions attached to it and a distinct memory of the things that happened on planet Earth. And they're also aware that the time of grace is nearing its end, so they're not asking God to forgive their enemies. They're saying, God, when are you going to bring the vengeance? Meaning they don't have full knowledge, not completely aware of everything God's doing. Just because they're in eternity, does, in eternity doesn't mean they know everything. So you and I are going to be continuing to learn and discover new things about not only the nature and character of God, but just discovering throughout eternity. But when you come to verse 11, still part of the rabbit trail here. When you come to verse 11, they're informed of something that they don't know yet. This is God's response. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So there's given to each person who's entered the presence of God this white robe, meaning you're not going to be naked in eternity, right? Now, some people wonder that. I'm going to be walking around with no clothes on. No, God's, God's got a white robe, and this white robe represents something significant. It represents righteousness, because God bestows upon us dignity and honor because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we're given this brilliant white robe and this gift of God is, is part of the eternal righteousness that we're clothed with. And then he says in verse 11, I want you to rest a little while longer. Why? Because according to verse 11, 
there's a number of fellow servants, brethren in Christ, who will also be killed, meaning it's with God's knowledge. It's with God's consent that these persecutions will be allowed, and it's a predetermined number, God says, of those who will be killed. So this should be given, now the rabbit trail's over, this should be giving us a new comprehension of God's grace. I need a volunteer this morning to quote for the rest of the auditorium the verse that's probably well known by most people here, John 3.16. Somebody willing to quote that out loud? And not everybody at once, all right, okay. Who's got it? You raising your hand, Lori? All right, real loud, though. This is my wife, by the way, if you haven't met Lori yet. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Excellent. Well done. Okay. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And church people understand what's involved in that. The sending means punishment in the sense of Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. Not that God punished Jesus, I'm not implying that. But the sense of persecution, pain, suffering. So God so loved the world that he allowed the suffering of Jesus Christ for you and I. Meaning God's a willing God to allow suffering and death for a greater purpose. So immediately we're thinking, that, that better be some kind of magnificent greater purpose if God's allowing people to die so that His greater purpose can be accomplished. So check this. God loves the world so much that He holds back judgment. That He holds back punishment. Because what looms on the other side is so horrific that God doesn't want anyone to perish. That He doesn't want to see anyone enter into the punishment. So God is patient. He's incredibly patient. And He waits and He waits and He waits. But a time is coming when He will wait no longer and he will no longer withhold judgment. We talked about this two weeks ago. Acts 17.31 says very specifically, it's a fixed day. God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. So there's a day, and it's a fixed day, when grace will come to an end, and judgment will fall, and the full force of God's wrath will be unleashed. Because of Exodus 34, go back to the original bookend that we talked about. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Yeah, he's long-suffering. Yep, he's patient. Yep, he gives, forgive, forgives iniquity and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So what does it mean to be guilty? It means God does not wink at sin. There's no such thing as a white lie or fibs. It's all sin. Scripture says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Specifically, Romans 3.23. If you've never read that before, look at it closely. It doesn't mean some. It says all, meaning all of humanity has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Nahum was an ancient prophet. He wrote in the Old Testament. He backed up what Moses wrote in Exodus by saying this, God is great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What does a punish look like? Well, we get the explanation in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So what is that? What is this eternal destruction? And immediately our mind goes to hell, right? Is, is hell literal? Is that a real place? The Bible speaks of the reality of hell with the exact same descriptions it uses of the reality of heaven. It doesn't minimize it in any form. The exact same words in the Greek language are interchanged. God doesn't mince anything. It might surprise you to discover that Jesus spent more time talking and warning about hell than he ever talked about heaven and the hope of heaven and the encouragement of it. 
And when he speaks of it, he speaks in very explicit terms. Nothing gray about it. It's very black and white to help people understand. He's never ambiguous whatsoever. Here's an example. Matthew 10, 28. These are Jesus' own words. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, Peter kind of echoes that. He backs it up. It says this in 2 Peter 2.4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned. He's talking about fallen angels here. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Talking about demons who committed such egregious acts that they're being held in chains at this moment. They're too ferocious to even let them out of hell. Even though there's demons that roam the planet now, there's some demons that have been locked away. Because their actions were so egregious, if you don't believe that, read Genesis chapter 6, just prior to the flood. You'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. So, by the way, we're going to do a little Q&A. This is moving really quick, and and I'm going to allow about 10 minutes at the end of the service if you've got questions, especially about like what you're reading here. So if there's things that are intriguing you right now, just write them down and, and bring them up in the last 10 minutes when we wrap this up. So we understand that God says hell is a reality. Uh, If you have trouble believing God would ever make a place of torment like you're reading about here, remember this. It was originally built, designed, and prepared for Satan and his angels, the fallen angels. It was not intended that man would be placed there. It was built prior to the fall of man. God built it for Satan. Let me back that up with Scripture. Matthew 25, 41. Jesus speaking again. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You often hear people say things like this, especially in our culture today. Man, I'm going through hell. And trying to help someone understand what's going on in their life, what their trauma is like. Hear me on this church. Hell is vastly, vastly miscalculated when we use it as a descriptor of something in our world. If we try to imagine the worst of all possible situations on planet Earth, we haven't begun to stretch our imagination to the dread of hell. Yet talking about it is so unpopular, most people would just say, I'd rather not go there. Don't even talk about it with me. I don't want to think about it. Except for one major problem. Jesus talks about it more than anybody else in the Bible. He speaks of it to the degree that 90% of what we know about hell comes from Jesus himself. So to help us comprehend what's going on with hell, Jesus uses a parable. And his parable is just kind of a short story. And it's in Luke 16. So if you looked at Exodus and you looked at Revelation, you might want to go to the middle of the Bible around the New Testament to Luke chapter 16. And I'm just pulling out two verses from this story. So Jesus takes a long section to talk to a group of people, Pharisees, who think that they're really good with God, that they're righteous, that they're doing everything right. And Jesus says, you better check your heart because here's what's at stake. You need to understand what's at stake in terms of you not being in right relationship with God. And so he brings up this parable and he begins talking about a man who's in hell. And he gives us this description of a conversation between Abraham and the guy in hell and the guy making some requests. Look with me, just a couple verses. Luke 16, 24. And he, meaning the guy who was in hell, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Abraham's response, can't do that. There's this great gulf fixed between us. I can't meet what your request is. So the guy in hell, according to Jesus' parable, has a response. Verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, meaning send Lazarus. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So his argument is this. My brothers don't understand. If I knew what I know now, I wouldn't be here. Please send someone to tell my brothers. Warn them of this place of torment. Why would he assume that his brothers would go to hell? 
And obviously, this is a parable, a story that Jesus is describing here of this conversation. But we've got Jesus talking about this guy in hell assuming that his brothers are coming there. Abraham has this response to him. You're not going to see this on the screen, but in verse 29, he says back to the man, your brothers have the prophets and your brothers have Moses. Let them listen to them. His argument is they won't listen to them. They won't read Scripture. They won't listen to God's Word. So his argument is they would understand if Lazarus came back from the dead and Abraham's response is they will not believe even if someone was to rise from the dead. Incredibly sobering that Jesus himself is telling this story. If individuals would read God's Word, they have Moses, they have the prophets. If they would read it, they would understand that the exchange system is the way that God deals with sin. Meaning He puts something in place as an exchange for my sin to take it away. God used Jesus, obviously, as the exchange to die for our sin. So let's cut right to it. What does the Bible say hell is? Well, the Bible describes hell as this place of outer darkness, a, a lake of fire. It describes it very specifically as this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a prison, a place of torment where individuals have conscious memory. They're completely aware. Jesus used in the parable this man who's aware of what he missed out on and that there's people on planet earth that need to know. He's very, very aware. And it also says there's this unending fire with billows of black smoke, and it's bursting with demons. And you take it one step further, it says there's even degrees of punishment to hell. And many people arrive at that conclusion on their own because they believe that God is a just God. I'll back that thought up with Scripture, but just catch what I'm about to show you. Jesus is on planet earth, and he begins talking to individuals in various cities who have seen his miracles. They've heard who he is, and yet they still stiff-arm God and say, no, I'm not going there. I have no interest in that. So Jesus pronounces what is called a woe, W-O-E, against the city of Capernaum. Look with me on the screen. Matthew eleven twenty-three. and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And, and that should be causing people to go, whoa. Because you know the account of what Scripture says happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus, God Himself, God the Son who became Jesus the man, says it'll be more tolerable for those individuals who had less information than it will be for you who have more information. Meaning God's got degrees of punishment that we're seeing here. I can back that up with other passages, but here's where I'm going with this. These are incredibly graphic images, and they really provoke us. So human nature is to respond by saying, maybe those are symbols. Maybe that's symbolism. If that's your thought right now, that Jesus used the most horrific symbols imaginable to describe this place is no comfort to those who see them simply as symbols. Dr. R.C. Sproul, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, he's a modern-day living theologian, and he spoke into this issue. I wanted you to see his quote about symbolism. He said it this way, A breath of relief is usually heard when someone declares hell is a symbol for separation from God. To be separated from God for eternity is no great threat to the impenitent person. Their problem in hell will not be separation from God. It will be the presence of God that will torment them. In hell, God will be present in the fullness of His divine wrath. He will be there to exercise His punishment of the damned. They will know Him as an all-consuming fire. So Sproul's approach is that hell is an eternity within the wrath of God. Here's a thought. Scripture actually backs that up. David said, if I make my bed in heaven, behold, you are there. If I descend into the depths of hell, you are there also. Whether or not Sproul is actually correct there, his thought is very, very stimulating. But here is this thought. No matter how you and I probe hell, it sounds like an incredibly cruel punishment, doesn't it? 
It sounds incredibly cruel, but we can be sure of one thing. There will be no cruelty in hell because it's impossible for God to be cruel. If cruelty is an infliction of punishment that's more severe than the crime, cruelty in that sense is unjust, but God is incapable of being unjust. So here's the most frightening aspect of hell to me. don't know about you. The most frightening aspect is that it's eternal. The eternality of it. You and I, we can endure the greatest agony if we know that it's going to come to an end. You've you've been involved in sports, maybe high school or college sports. Maybe, guys, you were involved in football and you showed up for two-a-days in August. You, You know agony, right? Morning practice, afternoon practice, but what's the deal? You know it's coming to an end. You're in military, you go through basic training. You know it's going to come to an end. The eternality of hell means that there's no such hope. And the Bible is incredibly clear. The punishment is eternal. It uses the exact same term to talk about eternal life in heaven as it does eternal punishment in hell. So we're checking our hearts right now. What does this whole thing revolve around and why is this in place? That question came up in each of the previous services, probably come up in this one. I'll I'll just touch on it here. The whole issue of man's separation from God has to do with God's holiness. That's what it revolves around. We vastly underestimate and misunderstand the holiness of the living God. Scripture speaks to that. Just here's one example. Habakkuk 1.13, God's eyes are too pure to behold or approve evil, and He cannot look upon sin. It doesn't mean that God can't see sin. It means he can't hang out with it. He can't have fellowship with it. So in rebellion, people typically cry out, and we're no different today than people were 2,000 years ago. Individuals will say, unfair. That is so unfair. Simply because we cannot begin to fathom the awesomeness of a holy God. So we circle all the way back around to where we started, and we say, okay, then... If that's all true, then why is God holding back? Why is He so incredibly patient? To answer that question, I need personally just a measure of understanding God's grace. For me, I'm talking Mark Kring, and I'm thinking you're the same way. Because trying to understand how vast and how wide and how deep is the love of God, it just gets beyond my imagination. If we define grace this way and God says, this is the way I look at it, you're not getting what you deserve. Think of it in human terms. we driving a car perhaps at 55 miles an hour through a 30-mile-an-hour zone and a police officer pulls you over. You know you're toast, right? You're deserving of the ticket. But if the police officer walks up and says, you know what, have a good day, be careful, you've just received grace from that cop, right? Because you deserved it but he didn't give you the ticket. That's grace, not getting what we deserve. So Genesis teaches us that God formed man in the garden and man walked with God, hung out with God, did fellowship with God day after day after day. And in the midst of that relationship with God, Adam and Eve together decided, you know what, I'm going to go my own way. I like what Satan is offering better. They didn't know him as Satan. They just liked what he was offering. I'll reject what God has offered. I'll go with this. And they surrendered their relationship with God. Somewhere in those very early precious years that were sinless on this planet, man made a conscious choice to pursue his own course. And since then, God's been waiting And I've wrestled with a visual image of how to understand God waiting until I came up with this little graph I'm going to put on the screen. Don't look for it in your notes. It's not there. But here's how I measure and understand God waiting. If a minute represents a unit, we'll just say a unit of time, a unit of God's grace and patience, let's calculate it this way. There's 1,440 minutes in a 24-hour day. That means there's 525,000 minutes in the midst of a year. Take it forward to 10 years. 
5,256,000 minutes. Take it forward, 1,000 years. 525 million minutes. Take it forward, 10,000 years, back to the time of Adam and Eve. 5,256,000,000 minutes. If you're thinking dollars right now, it puts the national debt in perspective, doesn't it? 19 trillion? Like, gal, I'll get back on track. See, that was an unnecessary rabbit trail, right? Okay. 5,256,000,000 minutes that God has been waiting and waiting and waiting moment by moment by moment for mankind to return to him. And so we come across verses like this in the New Testament. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Because you're not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repent. See, God loves us so much. He's willing to hold off on judgment. He's willing to hold off Precious moment by precious moment he waits. And Ezekiel answers the question, why? Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. See, this hell that we're learning about this morning, it should not and it cannot lead us to conclude that God takes delight in bringing retribution All I have to think of immediately is of my own child, Adam. When Adam was four years old, little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy that Lori and I took shopping to a mall, and he disappeared. We're looking at a clothing rack, and I turn around, and he's gone. And every mom in the room knows the instant heart pain when you cannot find your child in the midst of a shopping environment. We immediately hit the floor because we'd been taught, start looking for the shoes. So we hit the floor and we're looking and scanning across the shopping mall area where we're at, trying to see his tennis shoes and five minutes go by, 10 minutes goes by, 15 minutes go by. Lori finds the security guards, I find the store employees, and we're all on the floor looking around, scanning, trying to see, did somebody snatch this child? 25 minutes into it, I drop to the floor again and look across the floor and I see a little red tennis shoe drop from below a clothing rack. That little bugger had stood on top of the steel rack. But we didn't know that. For 25 horrific minutes, this parent is waiting and waiting and waiting and wondering, where is he? Really helps us to understand the prodigal child parable that Jesus taught about the child who has run away from the parent. And God patiently waits. He loves Adam far more than I ever love Adam. He loves us far more than we love each other. And that God is not willing for anyone to perish. Because He doesn't take pleasure in it. But judgment's got to come because He's just. So Scripture teaches that there will be a carrying out of the judgment. Because this planet's already been judged. It says this, we already heard John 3.16 really eloquently quoted, but many people forget about John 3.17 and 18. Look with me on the screen. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Why? Because Jesus didn't need to judge the world. It's already been judged. But that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because we're born into sin. We're born on a planet that is fallen. So check yourself on this. Have you heard people say, and maybe you've said it yourself, I don't believe a loving God condemns anyone to hell. It's common conversation. I don't believe a God would do that. It's true. God does not condemn people to hell. He allows them to opt for it because they reject Jesus. We have the right to reject. It's called free will. And we exercise the right to reject God. And that leaves a person in their condemned condition. 
So by rejecting, or perhaps you know people who do this, it, it's very polite, it's, it sounds like this, and I'm really glad you have your faith, that's cool for you. It, you know, you, you need that. I don't need that. So it's good, right? See, we're, Americans are especially polite, right? We're very polite to each other. That's good for you, but you know, I'm good. We can politely ignore Jesus at the peril of our own eternal destiny. And unbelievers who choose to reject remain unforgiven. So let's land this plane. Why does God give you and I this information? Why do we have this before us? Certainly not so that we can be patronizing or be superior to anyone else but rather to create compassion with us so that we would be motivated like the man who cried out in Jesus' parable. Tell somebody so that they don't have to go there. God wants us to know this so that we would be motivated to share our faith. We would talk to people about what's at stake. So here I'm among people who celebrated communion this morning, and we have reason to be thankful, right, church? We do. So today, let me encourage you, be thankful, incredibly thankful that Jesus made a way for you, (laughs) that God sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. By our faith in Christ, he put his righteousness on us even though we're sinners because everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. But let me give you another thing to be thankful for. Be thankful that Jesus holds the keys to death and hell and power over Satan. Because I am absolutely convinced as I read Scripture, if it were up to Satan, he would take all of humanity straight to hell with him. He hates God that much. So be thankful for God's power and be thankful for the salvation he's brought to us. So we're left with one question, the ultimate question. comes right out of the Bible, and I think it's on the minds of some people here this morning. What do I do? The Hebrew writer said, how do we escape then if we neglect so great a salvation? Here's the answer. You don't. There is no escape. If you neglect what Jesus has brought, he's made it really clear in his word. There is no escape if you neglect what God has offered. That's how I'd like to pray for us right now before we do just a couple minutes of Q&A, that God would take the reality of that statement and drive it into our hearts that we would remember it this week as we move forward. And if you need to check your heart, am I I in the right place where I'm in relationship with that living God and you're not sure where you stand, come talk to me after the service. I'd be honored to do that. It'd be my privilege to talk with you. It, it, it would just delight me to be able to help you reason through where you're at in relationship to God. But in the meantime, let's pray. Father, I pray that what we've studied this morning will not quickly escape our mind, but that you will use it. And not only where we need to be convicted, God, of our own weakness in our walk or our own strength in our walk, but also where we need to be motivated Bring the reality of hell to the forefront of our mind because you're not willing that anyone would perish. And we rest with that. So we leave here this morning thanking you for what you've given us. And we've already celebrated that in communion. We just thank you again. Thank you for what we have in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Anybody have any particular questions that came to your mind as you're working through this? And and by the way, if if you need to leave, don't feel obligated to stay. It's like five minutes after 12. But if you want to hang around for eight, ten minutes, feel free. Any questions that popped in your mind? Yes, Cindy. Um, Is Hades the same as hell? Okay, great question. Is Hades the same as hell? Hades is the Greek pronunciation of the word Sheol in the Old Testament. And Hades and Sheol are understood to be this temporary holding place so that if someone dies right now and they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says they go to Hades. But in Revelation chapter 20, it says death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire and hell are synonymous, the ultimate punishment, right? So we understand Hades to be a place of torment. That's what Jesus used in that parable of that illustration. 
but it's like almost like a, a holding place, which causes some people to think about the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, right? Like a holding place. That's actually where the thought of purgatory came out of. You can't support purgatory from the Bible. You won't find it any place in there. God says it's appointed unto man once to die, Hebrews 9.27, and after that the judgment. So there, there's no praying someone out of hell. That might be new news to some of you. Yes? Okay. When you read Luke 16, you see the, the bosom or the, at Abraham's bosom. That, that literally means that Lazarus, who had died in that story, was in this place of rest. So this is the way the ancients understood it, that there was two divisions to Hades. There, there was the punishment side of Hades and the place of rest. So that's what it meant for the Old Testament saints to go to Abraham's bosom, which literally meant to be at the side of Abraham or at this place of comfort. So it's natural for Jesus to use it in the parable because he's speaking to Pharisees and they're thinking that way. And he says to them, there's this guy who's in Hades and he's in the negative side, I'm in torment. And he calls out across this great gulf and he says to Abraham, I'm in torment in this flame. Will you deliver me from this? And Abraham is, is just a man and he says, I cannot do that. Besides, there's this great gulf fixed between us. So uh, in New Testament thinking, there's passages in Scripture that indicate that when Jesus died at the resurrection of Jesus, that he emptied out, or what Scripture calls he took captive captives, those who were at Abraham's bosom in the righteous place of Hades, and delivered them permanently into eternity, into heaven. It couldn't enter into God's presence until Jesus had atoned for sin on the cross, right? So we have individuals who lived a righteous life in the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, Joshua, Daniel, who were in this place of rest, and then Jesus takes them with them and ushers them into eternity. That might be more than what you were just asking, Erica, but okay, extra points, right? Yes. If you're a believer and you don't attend church, are you going to go to hell? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Scripture says you enter into the presence of God at the moment that you die. Church, going to church doesn't earn our salvation, right? We, we don't earn it by our works of righteousness. So I know many individuals who consider themselves strong believers, who I know when they die, that don't go to church, that will enter into eternity. God commands us to enter into fellowship in a church and to hang out with the brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's not a condition of your salvation. It's just an evidence that you're active in the church, right? So to answer your question, believers enter into eternity. They don't lose their salvation. Yes? Say again? What happens to unbelievers at death? Scripture says very clearly that they enter into, um, a, the, they exit from what we would call the opportunity to be redeemed, and they're immediately in this place of punishment, waiting for the great white throne judgment, before which, according to Revelation 20, all of humanity will appear before the great white throne. And that's when Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me, and to those on his right, enter into the kingdom that's been prepared for you. So believers are not judged, they're just told, okay, you're a believer, enter into eternity, right? Okay, hand back there. Will grace come to an end during revelation? Um, grace is the representation of Jesus offering salvation to everyone, right? So that doesn't come to an end until the end when the second coming occurs, and many people are confused. The rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus are two different events. The second coming is at the end of the tribulation period, and when Jesus returns, you could call that kind of like the end of the age of grace because everything comes to a screeching halt at that point. But up till then, in the tribulation period, it's very clear there's individuals coming to Christ in the midst of the seven-year tribulation. Yeah. Yes, Brian. I'm curious to hear you explain. Real loud so they can hear you up in the balcony. I'm curious to hear you explain that when God created hell and bound 
that he still allowed Satan freedom to roam. Yeah, okay. So when you go to uh, Brian's point was that when God created hell and that there's Satan, there's angels locked away, but Satan is still free to roam, that I would explain that to everybody here. Thank you very much, Brian. <laughs> so kind of you. Okay. Here's what I understand about what 1 Thessalonians chapter 6 is speaking to in relation to Genesis chapter 6. And Genesis chapter 6 is the description of the flood. Many people believe that Genesis chapter 6 is only a description of God's destruction of the planet because sin was so egregious upon the face of the earth. It also is a destruction of those sons of God that's referred to in Genesis chapter 6 when it says, the sons of God lay with the daughters of men, and there were Nephilim in those days, men of renown, the giants of old. Okay? Those angels who left their proper abode, meaning they were still fallen, they were demons who rebelled against God, had been assigned territory that God gave them. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 6 says they left their proper abode and they lay with the daughters of men. And for that reason, God cast them into chains of eternal darkness unto the day of judgment. Even when Lucifer looses the demons in the last days, those demons do not get loosed upon the planet. It's pretty horrific imagery. That's the best I can describe it, Brian. You want to add to it? No. I'm not sure it does either, but all I can speak to is what the Bible says. And, and so if, if we read into it more than that, why did God let Satan go free and bind these other angels? We have to assume that Satan maintained his abode, whatever abode was that God assigned him to, but these other demons who were incredibly powerful, God locked them away. That's all Scripture explains. They crossed the line. Good point, Kurt. Yeah. They crossed the line and God said, don't do it, and they did it, and they had to suffer immediately. It's a very interesting passage when Jesus is interacting with some demon-possessed individuals who run up to him in a cemetery and they say to him, have you come, Son of God, to put us in our place of torment before the day? Meaning they're very aware that there's a punishment coming. And they're aware that they're going to be put in the abyss. Scripture describes it as this giant bottomless shaft, blacker than black. And Jesus doesn't cast them there. They say, would you just send us out so that we don't have to go to this place of torment? So they're aware that there is this place that's intended for them to be locked away. Those ones were not put there yet, though, according to Matthew chapter 6. Yes, up in the balcony. Okay, say it one more time, real loud. The angel's capability to sin. Okay. Can we address the issue of angel's capability to sin in heaven and how that relates to us being in heaven one day? Will we have a capacity to sin? Is that what you're asking? Ultimately what it comes to. Okay. Your salvation in Jesus Christ is for all eternity. All right? So how do we understand the angels rebelling against God and this is a monstrosity of an issue because it leads to the next conclusion of, wait, why did God create the angels then if he knew that there was going to be rebellion in heaven? The first sin was not Adam and Eve's sin. The first sin was Lucifer's sin. Ezekiel's very, very clear that Ezekiel describes Lucifer in his perfect state, freshly created from God, the highest of all the created order, and Lucifer, according to the Bible, looks upon himself and says, I will ascend to the throne of the Most High God. I will be as God. And there is the rebellion. He believed that he could overthrow God and be as God. How can a created being, an angel, believe that he can be equal to God? And that's the sin that you're referring to. Okay? As a result of that, he drew one-third of the angels in heaven into rebellion against God along with him. How can sin be present in heaven? Because God gives his created beings free will, free to receive or free to reject. Angels have free will just like humans have free will. But the angels were judged as a result of their decision and God cast them to earth according to what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 13. I was there when Satan fell from heaven like lightning, meaning he not only was there, 
But Satan had a name change. He's no longer called Lucifer by Jesus. He's then called Satan, the one who had fallen, the adversary of God. So they're judged and just waiting for the day of judgment. And then along comes Adam and Eve, and they get the same temptation. Hey, Eve, God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit, you will be as God. Same temptation that he offered himself. And he tempted man with it, and man bit it and took it. And said, yeah, that sounds pretty attractive. I want glory like that. But we're told that when Jesus died for us, he took our sins away, separated them as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. So we should enter into the understanding that when we go into eternity, we go into eternity completely forgiven. Can we sin in heaven? My understanding is no. He will wipe away every tear. We will not suffer in that way. He died for us. So is there a temptation to believe that we would do what the angels did? The angels had free will. They exercised it. You have free will, and you've exercised it to believe that Jesus died for your sin. Does that answer your question? Say it again. Okay. Yes, in the back. Do angels have free will? Absolutely. Yeah. But they cannot be redeemed. No. Those who have fallen have already fallen. Scripture speaks pretty specifically to that. The rebellion took place in eternity past. Those who are holy angels are there. They're, they understand. But the third who fell in rebellion against God made a conscious decision even though they saw God as God and they still decided. Yes, one more. Two more. Do Catholics go to heaven? I almost said we're done with questions. Okay. Okay. I, would, I will address it straight on. I have friends who are Catholic in their tradition who are solid believers in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a condition of Catholicism worship. I, I think there's elements to Catholicism that are not biblical, if you're asking that question. We don't need to go down that trail right now. I don't see evidence in the Bible of purgatory. I don't see evidence of worshiping dead people, praying to the dead saints, okay? But that's a whole other issue. I have friends who I know that I know that I know they understand exactly who Jesus is and they're believers in Jesus Christ and I expect to be standing next to them one day in eternity, okay? So I would counter back to your friend. Your friend doesn't sit on the great white throne. God does and he's gonna judge based on what we know about Jesus Christ and what did we do with that information. Yeah. Uh, Gail. Yeah. When I, I, I track where you're going. When believers die, do they immediately enter into the presence of God? Yes, they do. So why do we see at the great white throne Jesus say, um, depart from me to the left, and those of you on my right enter into the kingdom that's been prepared for you? We're told that what God is preparing for us has not yet been finished. All right. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and when it's done, I will come and get you and bring you unto myself, and there you will be with me always. We're talking about the heavenly city. So to enter into God's presence right now, um, best I can understand it, is to be in the worshipful state of the glory of God. The white throne describes entering into that mansion, that place that's been prepared for us. Jesus said he's doing it himself. That's two different components that we're talking about. Yeah. I'm guessing you're all getting hungry by this point. Okay. Well, I hope you have a fantastic week. See you next time.